In our Family Matters series, we're going to talk about morals matter. Morals matter. Having a sense of values, a sense of morality, is, I think, a very important thing for, um, for society, but also for the family. It's very important for us to know uh, where we... Uh, we, have, we have, it's very important for us to be anchored to something that is solid in the areas of our morality and how we think and the values and how we make decisions in our life and process life. And uh, so we're going to talk about that a little bit today. And, uh, you know, Paul said this to Timothy when he wrote to Timothy in, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. He said, as the end approaches, people are going to be self-absorbed, money-hungry, self-promoting, stuck up, profane, contemptuous of parents, crude, coarse, doggy dog, unbending, slanderers. Am I ringing? <laughs> Impulsively wild, savage, cynical, treacherous, ruthless, bloated windbags, addicted to lust, and allergic to God. They'll make a show of religion, but behind the scenes, they're animals. Now, that's what Paul said was going to come. Now, I don't think he, in his mind, thought ahead to the year 2018. I don't think Paul had in his mind to think that far in advance. He was expecting something a little bit sooner, and I'm sure this, this scripture could have been fulfilled in many different stages of, of the history of mankind, especially in the, in the West. As we look at this, we can just recognize different parts of our culture and our society today and in the past that resonate with this. There's a, there's a tendency in humanity to drift towards... Um, selfishness and self-absorption and, and pleasing oneself, which takes us away from a strong sense of morality and purpose and values. And we see this at work in our own society. And when we're thinking about our families, when we're thinking about our children, when we're thinking about our grandchildren, we're thinking about the people that we influence on a regular basis and in life. If you're a teacher, you have the influence over ch children and young people. And when you think about that, what are we passing on to them? How are we establishing them with a sense of strong morality? That's what we want to talk about today. And I want to, I think we need to start with this idea, is that Morality is more than just rules. In fact, rules have proven to be very ineffective to, to bring people to a, a sense of morality and a sense of rightness. Um, in, in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul says this. He says, for sin is the sting that results in death. And the law, the rules, gives sin its power. Paul said you know, the thing that, that causes people to decay and to die is sin, is this, is this tendency towards immorality. And I don't just mean sexual immorality. I'm talking about morality in a broader sense. But there's, there's this, this tendency for us to, to, to become immoral, and, and then it kills us from the inside out. But he said the thing that fuels that, the thing that fuels sin in our lives is the law, the rules. And, you know, it's like, it's like you got a, a little fire there going, you know, and, and you throw some gasoline on it. Well, sometimes, you know, the way, you know, you're trying, to, you're trying to get people going in the right direction. Even in your own life, you're trying to get yourself going in the, in the right direction. And the very thing that we think is, is, is there to help us, the rules, actually flame, inflame 
sin in our lives. And it's a strange thing. I don't know if it's because of our rebellious nature or what it is, but it brings a focus on sin that creates a problem. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. Sin might increase, will increase because of the law. This awareness of sin becomes something that we, we become obsessed with. And you know, you look at cultures and societies and times when, when there were strong rules. I was raised in a very strict environment. And, uh, and I was the kind of person, my personality was, that on the, on the outside, I, was, I always kept the rules, you know. <laughs> I could make it look good. But inside, I didn't always keep the rules. You know, just because someone said this was the rule doesn't mean we keep the rules. In fact, sometimes when the rules are overemphasized, it actually fans into flame more sin. There's a rebellious side in us that doesn't really adjust well to rules. It doesn't really respond well to rules. Rules have a limited effect in inducing good morals. What happens, I think, when we get focused too much on rules, we start to think then if, if, if the rules, the exact wording of the rules is, is, is there, then we start to think, well, how can I get away with, how much can I get away with before I break the rules, you know? I remember, I remember being a teenager, uh, that's a long time ago now, and, you know, we had all these rules about dating and that kind of thing when I was growing up. And uh, so, but the question always was, well, how far is too far? That we were obsessed with that question. Because, you know, it would be like, well, where does the rules, you know, how far, can, how close can we get to the line and not fall over? That, that's just a, a natural thing. And people will tend to twist the rules. They'll tend to change the rules for themselves. And they'll, they'll find excuses for themselves because rules really don't have any, any real effect. Because rules don't have any power to change our hearts. Because Jesus said that, that, that the evil in our lives comes from within. It's not the outside forces. There's a natural propensity for us to pull away from what's right, to be selfish. And that's really what it's all about. It's a, a tendency to be selfish. So rules are not effective. But <clears throat> then I want to ask the question, what guides us? In our morality, what what can we look to for guides, and how effective are they in our morality? So let's look at a few guides that we have in our society for morality. First of all, let's talk about tradition. I think tradition is one of the the, the guidelines we go to most often. We go to what was you know what it was in the past, how I was raised. You know, I talk to my children. Well, you know, when I was young, when I was your age, we were you know allowed to do this, and we weren't allowed to do that. You know, I, I teased my kids. You know, when I, went to, when I went to college, you know, I went to a Bible college, and we weren't allowed to wear jeans. You know, my kids were upset because when we, they were young, we didn't let them wear jeans to, to church. Um, and, uh, and now, of course, all that's gone. That's fine. That's, it was a bad rule. But, you know, we, there, everything changes, and, but we often go to tradition, and we go to the past, and we think about how we were raised, and how, what, what kind of rules we had, and we, we look at tradition as being, um, you know, a, a, a guideline for our morals, and we're often afraid to break those traditions. We feel like if those traditions get broken, somehow we will have failed, but generally, 
oftentimes things change from generation to generation. And they vary from tradition to tradition and from culture to culture. You know, you can go to, you can go to one group of people and they'll have a tradition, a moral tradition, and another group will have a different moral tradition. A good example of this in our culture, in our, in our Christian culture in, in North America, is the issue of drinking alcohol, for instance. You know, um, in, in North America, in, uh, in, in Protestantism, it became very, uh, very a, a strong tradition not to drink alcohol. And, but if you looked at our counterparts in Europe, in, you know, in, in all of, of uh, Eastern Europe, they wouldn't even see drinking alcohol as an issue. The difference is the, the, the issues surrounding the temperance movement of the, of the 19th century, where uh, in, in the frontiers of, of uh, particularly the U.S., but also here in Canada, in the settling of the frontiers of North America, oftentimes there was a, a great abuse of alcohol. And, uh, you know, the saloons and that kind of thing. We see that culture in, in movies. And it was a very destructive kind of thing. And women in particular were very, were, were caught in that because their husbands would spend all their money in the saloons. And it was just a real, it was a horrible social ill. So this group of, of this social group grew up the, called the temperance movement. And it was mostly women and church people that, uh, that were against drinking because they saw what it was doing to the, the, the frontier, to the, the, the advancement of culture in North America. And, uh, and out of this also grew the, um, the, the women's right to vote movement, uh, the suffragettes. Uh, because women realized in, in North America that if they, didn't, if they were going to change the rules, they had to have the ability to vote. So they, they started... The, all of these social things happening in our culture, and this, this, the leftovers of the temperance movement, which kind of led to prohibition, and which wasn't successful, but all this remnant kind of sticks in North America. So we have a really strong tradition in some of our church cultures of not drinking. But that's something that's not carried on in other parts of the world. The Bible's very clear about drunkenness, but it's not really clear about alcohol itself. And, but yet, in our culture, we have taken a moral stand or have taken this moral stand. And many people still abide by those kind of things. Nothing wrong with that. It's a good thing. Uh, alcohol has produced a lot of ill in our society, even still today. But that's where it kind of comes from, and it means it's, that we have some different standards than, than other areas or kind of cultural things that come. So tradition has value, but it's a bit, it's a bit precarious. You need something deeper than tradition, I guess is what I'm trying to point out. You can't count on tradition as being enough. In fact, uh, when you're trying to pass tradition on to the next generation, they'll often just disregard you because they just have all kinds of reasons why you're wrong and they're right. So you need something a little bit deeper than that. The other thing the Bible talks about that we can use as a guide is our conscience. Thank God that we have a conscience. The Bible says that, you know, God, the Spirit of God, he writes his law on our hearts. And in Romans chapter 2, verse 15, they demonstrated that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. Our conscience is something that will help to guide us in our, in our morals. It's something that we can, we can rely on. To a certain extent, we can count on our conscience. And, and most people in our culture, in our society, have a conscience. At some point, they, 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 they get to a point where they say, no, that is wrong. 
That is evil. There, there's a line. And, and we have that within ourselves to be able to do that. And if we're prepared to cultivate and listen to our conscience uh, with the basic tenets of morality, we can, we can really get along well in life. But we have to be prepared to listen to our conscience. We have to, be, we have to keep it tender. We have to keep it soft. We have to keep it, we have to keep it um, uh, very, very, we have to be very attentive to it. Because it's very easy to, to kind of get calluses over our conscience. And it can't always count on it. Sometimes, um, you know, we, we sometimes we find ourselves in, in you know, where we, our, our conscience is not always reliable for us. Um, it can be easily manipulated. Our conscience, if we're going to use it to guide our morals, it must be tended like a garden because weeds will grow in it and it'll just get infected with things that make it difficult to use. So our conscience is a, is a, good, is a good way to guide our morals, but it's not necessarily the most reliable. Then the Bible also talks about the, the work of the Holy Spirit in the area of guiding us in our morals. In, in John chapter 16, verse 8, it says, and when he comes, talking about the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of its sin and God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. You know, we have an ally as, as families, as, as a, a culture, as a society, we have an ally in the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that when he was leaving, he was going to send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit would be there to lead us into truth and to lead us into righteousness and to convict us when we need to be convicted. We need to trust that God is at work today in our society, in our families, in our kids, and that, that the, the Holy Spirit is at work in our world today to be able to guide us into truth. Sometimes I talk to parents and I talk to grandparents and they're very afraid for the next generation. They're very afraid because they see, you know, morals slipping or they see standards slipping or they see certain beliefs going uh, astray or whatever. And I say to them, you know, look at the history. Look at you know, we've we're 2,000 plus years of Christianity and has the Holy Spirit failed? Has the Holy Spirit not been there? Have, have, have parents and grandparents not been able to be successful in passing on to the next generation the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's not your work. It's not my work. The Holy Spirit is sent to do that work for us. And so as, as families and as, as, as leaders and as, as teachers and parents and grandparents, we can actually invite the Holy Spirit. We can trust the Holy Spirit to be alongside us, to work alongside us in partnership, to be able to have an effect on our children and on the next generation. I just finished reading a biography of William Wilberforce, and, uh, you know, William Wilberforce was, uh, in the 18th century, was a British politician, and, uh, and he kind of led the charge against the slave trade and, um, in, in Britain. And that man worked for years, literally decades, on this cause. And he worked, he, he, was, he, was, a, he was a firm believer in Christ and in, in his faith in, 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 the, in the gospel and in the Bible. And he just believed that slavery was wrong. And he believed the slave trade itself was diabolical because of the, the treatment 
of Africans. And he just took it upon himself as a, as a single person in the beginning to begin this fight. And it took decades, but finally, the slave trade was, was abolished in, in Britain. And of course, we, you, you and I know the history. And, and thankfully, the Holy Spirit was able to work through William Wilberforce and through, through his life. And, and we live today in a society that acknowledges that slavery is evil and wrong. And the Holy Spirit is the one, the force behind that kind of work. And the, that, that same Holy Spirit is there to work with you and with your family. I think another guide that we can use is the gospel. That is the story of Jesus. The gospel really is the story of Jesus. It's not, it's not a trick about how to become a Christian or how to go to heaven. The gospel is, is the story of Jesus. It's about Jesus' life, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. It's that story. And in that story, in the story of the gospel, when we read the story of Jesus and we, we, we let that, that permeate our lives, that story gives us a, a foundation for our own morality. Because we see in Jesus a, 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 a sense of morality that goes deeper than any other human being. Even people that don't believe Jesus was, was, was divine or that he is the son of God or that he is God, people that don't believe that, they will say that Jesus had a great moral teaching. You see, Jesus astounded people with his teaching because he, he kind of cut into the, the very core of, of humanity, and he was able to kind of stir up in people the, their thinking and, and, and really had an impact on them. He said things that were radical in his day, and they're radical today. Jesus stood by things like, love your enemies, when we just take some of the, the things that Jesus said, when we take the things that are enmeshed in the gospel story, some of Jesus' ideals and some of his teaching, and we apply that to our life from day to day, it has a power effect, powerful effect. If you live by the, 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 the ideal of love your enemies, you're going to be a moral person. Because if you can love your enemies, you can love the lovelies. <laughs> You see, Jesus, the, the gospel and how Jesus lived life and what he taught are, are a tremendous uh, motivation for us to, to, for our morality. In John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Our focus on Jesus Christ, his life, his work, his love for others, and his sacrifice will have us living at the heart of God because Jesus is God, and he lived his life here on earth. He demonstrated to us how we too can live our life, and he calls us into that, that kind of radical living of loving our enemies, of caring for those who are downtrodden. That's the kind of life that Jesus calls us to live. Another thing, and our final thing that guides us in our morals is the Bible. And many people, many Christians, use the Bible to kind of be the foundation of their, their morals. And I would say that, yes, it's a, very, it's a very powerful thing if you use it in combination with Jesus, our conscience, our tradition, all of those things come together. If you just use the Bible alone, sometimes people have, have misused it. It's a, it's a very easy book to misuse. It's so ancient. It's so old. It has so many odd little rules in it. And, you know, it, 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 
You know, if we were to take, if, you know, some people say, I, I believe the Bible, I believe everything it says, and I'm going to do everything it says. Well, then stop eating fish. I mean, stop eating shellfish. No more shrimp cocktails for you. Because the Bible says you're not supposed to eat that. You know, there are all kinds of things, there's kind of rules in the Bible that, that you know, if you, if you wanted to, you could, you could really get yourself all wound up in those rules. So it takes more than just understanding or knowing the words in the Bible to be able to live a moral life from the Bible. The Bible is very powerful, but what ends up happening is a lot of people just kind of cherry-pick their favorite things from the Bible. And usually they're the things that they're good at. Their favorite rules become the ones they don't have a problem with. And those are the ones that they use to measure everybody else. They just kind of cherry-pick um, the, their favorite rules. So, you know, let, let's look at some warnings. Paul says this in Colossians chapter 2. He says, <clears throat> uh, why do you keep on following the rules, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. When Paul is talking to, to, to new Christians in the, in the town of, uh, of Colossae, he's saying to them, you know, you can get all hung up in these rules. These teachers that are coming to you, and they've got all these rules for you to follow, and you can get hung up in those rules. Don't eat, don't touch, don't taste, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. But you can live by those rules, but they don't really change your heart. And you need, we need something deeper than that. And, you know, <clears throat> we see this all the time. We see within the church, we see people that can, are able to, to express the rules, but they can't live the rules. They, they talk about the rules a lot. They talk about what the standard is, and they have a very high standard. You know, just recently, another, you know, uh, mega, mega church pastor in the U.S. has been caught up in, a, in a, a, uh, a scandal about his life, probably one of the most respected uh, Christian leaders in my lifetime. And, and he, he, would, he, would, he would express to everybody his standards and his, his, um, his, his belief in what is right and what is wrong, but at the same time, he himself couldn't even live to, up to that. We see, those, we see this kind of thing happening in, in, uh, in, the, in the news with the, with the Catholic Church and the, the abuse of children and, and all the, 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 the um, controversy around that and, and just the horrors of people suffering under the... the under the, the hurt from people who claim to have a certain standard of ethics and morals, but don't live them. You see, the rules themselves are not enough. Just knowing the Bible, just saying, I, I live by the Bible, or just having those, you know, having some kind of commitment to rules is not enough because when, it, when push comes to shove, it doesn't really change us in our hearts. And if we don't have that change in our hearts, we can't live a moral life. We need something beyond just the rules to be able to help us. Also, I think we have to be careful about hypocrisy. 
when it comes to the Bible. Because oftentimes we can, we can quote scriptures at people and we can know what's right and know what's wrong, but again, we don't necessarily live up to it ourselves. Jesus said it this way in his teaching, don't judge others and you'll not be judged. Why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of the speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, rid, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you'll see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. This problem of hypocrisy within, people, within the, the life of moral people people that claim to be moral and have moral standards, when they start living hypocritically, it does huge damage to our culture and to our society and to our families. And probably the, 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 the best thing that you can do to be able to, to, be able to uh, pass on a moral life uh, to your children and your grandchildren and others is to live a moral life yourself and not be a hypocrite. But it's so easy to fall into hypocrisy in a world where we, we are not very good at self-disclosing our own struggles and our own problems. We're not good at dealing with that log that's stuck in our own eye. We just kind of ignore it, and we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to deal with it. But it's a lot easier to start picking and poking at the speck in your friend's eye or in someone else's eye, and we start to feel better about ourselves when we can point out the sins of others in their life. You know, we, we in the in church um, get a lot really hung up on sexual morality, <clears throat> and rightfully so. The Bible says sexual morality kind of takes us into an, a, another dimension. You know, the Bible says, Paul says that, you know, there's no other sin that affects you personally more than sexual sin because you sin against your own body, against your own self. And so it's a very important thing. But sometimes we, you know, we get hung up on that and we, we get very accusatory towards others who maybe don't have the same standards as we have or, you know, it's very easy to poke at other people. But you know what the Bible talks about more and is also a sin against your own body? Do you know what subject the Bible talks about more than sexual issues? Gluttony. Did you know that? Now, how many people in our culture maybe eat a little bit more than they need to? When, when is it, when is it, when is it, you know, it, it's so easy to point at other people and their sin because we do well in that area of our life. But when it comes to something that maybe touches on us a little bit more, you know, in our, in our affluent society where we have, you know, grocery stores just packed jam with food and all, you know, just we have way more than we ever needed. We, we could be accused of people around the world of being gluttons easily. Where there are people in the world that are living just on what they need even. Not people even that are hungry or people that are starving. We're just in places in the world where people just eat what they need. They could look at us in North America and say, you are a bunch of fat pigs to put it bluntly, because we eat way more than we need to. You see, this is the kind of example. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. Go home and eat whatever you like. I'll eat cake. But, you know, today, there's, 
I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm just trying to point out how easy it is to start poking at the speck in someone else's eye. And we lose our moral credibility when we are poking at others and not tending to our own self. When we're kind of ignoring the sins and the moral issues that we have just grown accustomed to in our own life. Well, those are kind of the guidelines, but I think there has to be something deeper. I still think there needs to be something deeper than just, just tradition, just our conscience, just the Holy Spirit, just the gospel, just the Bible. There has to be something that really motivates us to live a righteous life. And I think that, again, that takes us back to, to the Bible, because it's all in the Bible. And it takes us back, to, first of all, to Jesus' teaching. And Jesus said, you know, really, you could sum up all the commandments in this. You could love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and love your neighbors yourself. Paul put it more succinctly in Galatians chapter 5, verse 14. I think this is probably the, the, the greatest motivation. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If we started loving people as much as we love ourselves, in other words, if we put all of our selfishness aside and all of our self-indulgence and all of our, 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 our self-preservation, all these things that we do for ourselves, and we say, no, every person in the world, every person I come in contact with, they're on an equal footing with me, and I, I am going to treat them with the love and the respect that they deserve, that the Bible says what Jesus says that I need to show to them, I think we'll have a hard time becoming not being moral people. Because morality at its roots comes in caring for other people. You know, again, on this issue of sexual morality, immorality, there's some, and this is where the Bible also comes short, is the Bible just doesn't talk about some of the things that we have to deal with today. The Bible's an ancient book, and the Bible doesn't talk about pornography. Right? And we have to extrapolate from the Bible some of the, the values that come from the Bible and be able to apply it to these kind of things. And, you know, um, and we've gotten past the point today where you can just say to people, it's wrong. I mean, it's everywhere. It's in our advertising. It's in, it's in, it's in our computers. It's, it's on our phones. It's everywhere. We are, we are bombarded. Our, our society is bombarded with sexual images all the time. So how do we, how do we rationalize? How do we deal with that? When we, think of, when we think of this concept of love your neighbor as yourself, you know, I think if I were sitting down talking to my kids today about it, and I, I, I maybe didn't handle this really well when, I was, when my kids were small, but if I, if I were talking to my kids about it now, I'd talk about what about these people, that, these images, these, these movies that are made of? How many of them are, 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 are being trafficked in a sex trade? How many of them have lost their own freedom? How many of them are being held hostage by... Uh, financial, you know, um, pressures, or, or how many of them are like our like owned slaves, practically? You know, underneath of, of something like the, 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 the pornography industry is this horrible, uh, vile system of degrading people. And if we think about it from that perspective, if we start talking to our kids about, you know, do you know how these, you know how these images are taken? Do you know how people are abused? Do you know how people, you know where these people come from? Do you know that some of those people are, are being used against their will for this kind of thing and someone's making a lot of money off of these people? 
I think there are ways for us to kind of look at some of the, the things that we find so offensive in our world today, and we have to look at it from a perspective that goes deeper than just this is bad. And Jesus said, if we're going to love our neighbors as ourselves, well, you can't be really loving if you are using people in the way that pornography uses people. I think we need to, um, we need to teach our kids that, you know, that, that, <clears throat> that sex is not bad, it's not dirty, it's something to be, to be celebrated. And that just because, just began, again, just because people live within the rules doesn't mean that they're, they're doing things right. They, there's this twisting, there's this ability. You know, I talk to people all the time and they're very accusatory of other people about sexual issues. But, you know, just because someone is married doesn't mean that their sex is wholesome. There's a lot of married people that abuse sex with each other. Sex is used as a, as a, as a, as a power thing in a marriage where demands are made, where things are forced, where, 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 where there's loss of, of dignity. Sometimes sex is used as a manipulation. I'll give you sex if you do this for me or if you give me this. Or, you know, those are not, that's not the way God intended sex to be used. You can, have, you can be married and you can still not be holy in your sexuality. And so we have to understand and we have to teach and we have to live and we have to model a, 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 a sexuality and a morality that goes above just the appearance of what's good. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your wife as yourself. Love your husband as yourself. Paul talks about you know, being, being you know, submissive to one another. Then I think one more thing, or another thing, is the fruit of the Spirit. We are not called to judge people's sin, but we are able to judge by their fruit. As, you know, one, I always remember this, we're not, we're not to judge people's sin, but we can be fruit inspectors. The Holy Spirit produces, Paul says, the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these things. If we are going to, if we are, if we are going to uh, be moral people, then we're going we're gonna to live a life of fruitfulness, fruit of the Spirit. And finally, the other thing that will motivate us <clears throat> is grace. Paul says that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Paul says, rules aren't effective, but grace is. When we know that we are loved unconditionally, when we know that when, no matter whether we fail or whatever it is, that God loves us, we find comfort in that. We find strength in that. We find, we find safety in that. The reality is, is that we all sin. We all fall short on the moral spectrum. We all make mistakes. We all have something in our eye that needs to be dealt with. We're all not seeing clearly about our own lives. And so each one of us needs to be dependent upon God for his grace. And we need to exercise this grace within the context of our family and of our church and of our community. 
Because that's what will actually show people the love of God. When you see how Jesus walked through life and he just, he offered grace to people freely. I forgive your sins. Your sins be forgiven. And Jesus, over and over and over again, these are the words that he would say to people, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. There was never words of condemnation. I don't mean that we don't have standards, but we have standards, but they're just, they're just surrounded by grace in our life. And when we see people struggle, we don't condemn and we don't point our fingers. We, we, we actually we reach out to them with grace and with love and with the mercy of God because that's how God treats us. We're going to have communion just before we're finished this morning and um, I'm going to invite um, the, uh, the, those who are going to serve communion to, to uh, pass out the...